I'm Tommy Salmons. This is year zero. As promised, getting a legal analysis on all the good stuff we have going on in society today, I obviously invited my favorite attorney, Michael Harris. How's it going, Michael? Good and great. Feeling great. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, uh, how are you, uh, how are you, you still doing okay with the uh, lockdown? Well, uh, Dallas County says that uh, dealing with people in Dallas County Jail is a quote-unquote essential government function, so I have been uh, functioning during the uh, pandemic shutdown, but uh, it's a new world that we're living in legally. We're still adjusting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought, yeah, did they, didn't they cancel the courts? They have canceled all jury trials uh, in the state of Texas. I can't speak about other states, but if we got an order from the state of Texas that we're not to have any jury trials at least till the month of August. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I, they didn't, I know the, the border closings at Louisiana, they didn't last very long. Um, that I, we, I think I, it, maybe three weeks it lasted. And it, it was just kind of like, even before they announced that they were opening uh, the borders back up, it's just, it's like the cops just quit showing up to, to the borders. I, I was just kind of like, okay, well, I guess that's over. You know, the, I guess laws only, I, I've heard it said that laws only uh, count if they're willing to enforce them. And I guess they just lost the will to uh, run those checkpoints. There is a uh, lot of truth in the fact of uh, legislature says one thing, but in police enforcement on the streets says something entirely different. And uh, I mean, frankly, I think most police officers, the last thing they want to do during the pandemic is fill up their jails with potential <laughs> patients. And they're terrified of COVID-19 or whatever virus just going through the, the, the jail population because there's it's really hard to practice social distancing in a jail facility. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I can tell you that uh, the Texas state prisons, they are not picking up people from Dallas County during the pandemic. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So we've had uh, we've had some uh, we've had a few cases where people they got prison sentences, but because they had a large amount of back time that applied towards their, and they got a minimum sentence, so they have actually already served up their time, but yet they can't be discharged from the Dallas County Jail because they had not been processed by the state system. And it's kind of like, hey, we've already served out our time now. So I have not had that come up in any of my cases, but I have heard some other attorneys talk about that happening now. Oh, wow. I, my wife used to work for, um, an attorney in Beaumont and, uh, she still communicates with him and keeps in touch with him. And he had, he had mentioned to her that when all this, the lockdown first came around that, uh, they were, the police were basically ordered to stop arresting people for theft and to only focus on drug and DUI convictions. And I thought that was strange. 
I was like, well, so people can go around stealing cars or breaking into homes and the police are just going to turn the, their other treat, the other cheek, so to speak, but they're going to continue to seek out drug and DUI convictions. And I was like, that just seems kind of backwards to me, but okay. That's very backwards to basically Dallas County was practically the opposite. It's kind of like, Hey, don't waste time filling up our jails with people on low level drug cases. We want you to focus on domestic violence calls because people are locked down. Right. But uh, I mean, a lot of law enforcement is really local politics. Yeah. So that might've been a Beaumont thing. I don't, I don't know if that was just a Beaumont thing or what, but I just know that's what they were, what had been passed along to me. I can pretty much guarantee you that law enforcement and local politics are inseparable. <laughs> is, uh, yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, I mean, I can tell you stories about that if you want me to about uh, that that you know, local pressure has a big say in how law enforcement does their jobs. Well, I mean, well, this is a good transition because that's what we that's what we're on the phone to talk about today. Anyways, uh, the the police brutality and the reaction to police brutality that we're seeing all across the country at this moment. And, you know, uh, I, I've said that George Floyd was the straw that broke the camel's back, that this is something that's been going on for decades. It's this isn't something new. And anybody who acts like this is a new phenomenon is, is just blind or ignorant. One of the two. And so one of the one of the things I've always said and that that you've brought up to me is how do you is every person, including officers, being being treated equally under the law? How could we go about implementing that? And why is it not like that? Why, why is there such a disparity in like the two levels of of law that we're dealing with? Well, I mean. First of all, there's really no way to get around the fact that there is a dollar sign on law enforcement, okay? But I mean, there's nothing new to the idea of uh, marginal groups tend to see police officers as oppressors rather than protectors or code enforcers. I mean, that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus with the Hebrews in ancient Egypt, okay? That is absolutely nothing new about that. Right. But uh, to bring it to modern day America, to me, there's no reason why police officers should not be judged by the same set of laws when it comes to wrongdoing as ordinary citizens. I mean, we already have in, in the Texas Penal Code uh, defenses for necessity, mistake of fact, self-defense, or defense of a third person, and I see no reason why law enforcement should not be judged by the same standards well can you break and, down okay can, can you break down necessity and mistake of fact i think self-defense and defense of a third person speaks for itself but can you can well, you kind of give us a breakdown of what necessity and mistake of fact actually is uh well i mean mistake of fact would be i i got there's there's a well-known case right now in the houston area with police officers saw a kid with a toy gun and the police officer immediately just pulled out a gun and just plugged the kid right claiming hey i thought it was a real gun i mean it, 
I mean, no question he overreacted and should have investigated in more detail. But I think just on a purely theoretical point, he could say, hey, that was a legitimate mistake of fact, that I thought the toy gun was a real gun. All right. Uh, now, as far as necessity, it's a legal principle of I broke the law, but I did so for a higher purpose. I can tell you that I had just, for example, one case that I had years ago where I was appointed to represent a guy who was holding, they said he had uh, illegal drugs, which of the drugs were legal, but he had to have a prescription to hold them. And I showed the jury is kind of like it was his brother's medication and his family wanted my guy to hold his, his brother's medication because they thought his brother would just overdose on the pills. And so I made the argument to the jury that this was a textbook case of the necessity law. And so the jury found the guy not guilty. Uh, okay. One of my moments in glory as a public defender. Okay. So <laughs> don't get many, <laughs> but that was one of the ones. So that would be uh, the best example that I have encountered in my 20 years of handling court appointments of a necessity. Does that uh, make things clear? Yes. Yeah. No, okay. absolutely. So when you have when you have a situation and I don't is, now, do you know if if all these reasonings do, do does necessity mistake a fact all this translate to most other states or is this the, just Texas that we're talking about here? Well, I mean, I'm licensed to practice law in Texas and federal courts and no other, but uh, I I think the basic concepts are pretty much Universal. nationwide. They're all mentioned in what's called the model penal code. Okay. But each state has their kind of like variations. Louisiana has a bunch of variations. Okay. So, but I, I think the basic principles are pretty well nationwide that that actually makes me laugh because um when I, I remember going to traffic court once when i was like i don't know 18 19 years old um and and the judge kept comparing harris county uh to uh louisiana parishes and he and he's like if you were in louisiana you would perish that's why they call it a parish <laughs> and not a county you know so that's, that's kind of funny um, I don't remember the entire spill. It was it was a good 10 minutes. It was pretty funny. It was actually one of the few judges I've stood in front of that I thought was actually entertaining. Um, well, I've been in front of a lot of the judges that were entertaining. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's thing of they uh, they treat me differently than you, I'm certain. I would that. imagine. I would imagine. Yeah. But, um, okay. I, mean, so I now, love you, Tommy, but I mean, I don't think all the judges appreciate the Chris Stapleton look. Okay. So... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So the reason I was asking about the the mistake of fact in other states is it made me think of um, the Daniel Shaver case when he was shot in the hallway of that hotel room uh, or of that hotel, and uh, the he was a uh, he was a pest control guy and he was cleaning his uh, a pellet gun in the window of the hotel. And uh, somebody called the police saying that he was aiming a rifle. And even though Arizona is an open carry state, they sent a SWAT team there or, you know, a, a unit of very well armored and armed police officers there that were ready to shoot first and ask questions later. 
And as he's crawling down the hall, begging for his life, um, his bicycle shorts got caught under his knee. And when he went to grab his shorts, one of the officers opened fire and executed him in the hallway. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And I can tell you about another case that I had. I, I was appointed to represent this guy for felony drug. He was involved in a uh, marijuana transporting ring. And uh, literally, he's called when they're trying to arrest him, they're pursuing him in black SUVs. And we have this great 911 call where he's calling up 911. There's people in black SUVs. They're trying to run me off the road. They're trying to kill me because he thought they were like his uh, drug comp competitors, people who worked for his uh, boss's competitors that were trying to execute him. Mm -hmm. And so he calls up 911 and says these people in black SUVs are after him. They're trying to run him off the road. You got to send the police. You got to send the police. And they're like, sir, those are the police. Like, no, they're not. Like, yes, they are. Those, those are uh, agents with the, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And he goes, you send somebody in a marked police car with overhead lights on and I will pull over. But until then, I, I don't believe you. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they did actually charge him with a Dallas County offense of evading a, a arrest with a vehicle because of that. Now, I wouldn't appoint on that particular car of the case, but I think that would have been a, uh, a, a mistake of fact case of that if that had gone further. Right. Yeah. I think it's also important to bring out, though, that when I make the argument that uh, law enforcement should be judged by the same set of rules. I'm sure most of your uh, listeners are familiar with the uh, the Waco Branch Davidian siege yes, sir. that happened. And uh, most people don't know this, but first of all, there were survivors of the compound attack that were charged with crimes of uh, shooting the ATF agents. Yes, sir. And the defense lawyers made the argument that those survivors acted in self-defense even though it was law enforcement they were entitled to use deadly weapons to defend themselves against the atf agents and a texas jury found those people not guilty yeah there was a guy there there was also a guy um a couple of years ago i can't remember his name and um the the uh, SWAT team was executing a no-knock raid, came in his home without announcing themselves, and he killed three officers, and he just recently, like I said, it was like two or three years ago, he got off, and they, they found him not guilty um, for murdering uh, police officers, because he was, because of the Castle Doctrine, he was defending his home. Yes. So, yeah, that's, there's actually a precedent in Texas for that, and uh, that's one of the good things about Texas that at least they do recognize that there is the opportunity to defend yourself against police in, in at least those situations when they're coming into your home. Yes. But, but this brings us to our next point that we wanted to discuss, and this is probably going to get a, a little more detailed is qualified immunity and how a lot of these police officers are, are getting off. And, you know, I said, when the, with with Derek uh, with Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd situation, that there was very little precedent for him to 
claim uh, qualified immunity in this case that there were there was no way he was going to uh, claim that he feared for his life while this man was handcuffed and being held down by two other officers while Derek Chauvin, a man that already that knew him previously, had his knee on his neck until he died. So, but there are a lot of officers like in that Daniel Shaver case that I brought up that even though the officer had your fucked written on the barrel of his rifle, which they didn't allow into evidence because it may prejudice a jury. He was, he, uh, he was actually got off with qualified immunity, which I actually, as you have pointed out to me, does act as disc unqualified impunity in many cases. So what, what can we learn about qualified immunity? Well, I mean, first of all, I do want to say that I got I got the phrase qualified immunity smacks of unqualified impunity from Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor. OK, so uh, it, you know, it's only plagiarism in law school, but I do want to start <laughs> where I got that from. And uh, in particular, I mean, since you brought up the George Floyd situation, I think it's very important to point out the actual crime that he was accused of committing was counterfeiting a $20 bill, all right? Now, there's a uh, long-standing history that police officers or, or law enforcement is allowed to use deadly force to arrest somebody for a felony. Mm -hmm. However, let's keep in mind in old English common law, there were only like five felonies like rape, murder, burglary, stuff like that. Right. And the punishment for all of them was the death penalty if you were convicted. Okay. I, I really have a hard time believing that uh, they had in mind of uh, somebody counterfeiting a $20 bill, even though technically it is a felony under current American law, but using that as a justification to, for using deadly force against an unarmed man who wasn't in any, from far as I know, was not threatening law enforcement or anybody else in the public at all. Uh, and when you look at the situation, the way that it came down, it looked like he was waiting for law enforcement to show up. Maybe he didn't even know that he had, that it was counterfeit until it was pointed out to him. And the, it's possible. We'll, we will never know. Really. Right. I mean, it, it wouldn't, it would not stun me if he, if he didn't really actually the one handling that was handling the $20 bill that they, they kind of like created that story to cover their tracks, uh, to create what the technical term is plausible deniability. Right. I mean, I hope the facts come out in more detail about that. I, I think the main things, which you no, know, we can go into more details about it later, but this particular case, I think this officer is going to have a hard time arguing for qualified immunity. Now, as far as the, the whole doctrine of qualified immunity, it's very important to point out that there is no piece of legislation whatsoever that was approved by Congress or signed off by the president creating qualified immunity. It is 100% created by the courts. Mm -hmm. They had no historical justification for whatever. They basically created the doctrine, the Supreme Court, or uh, we, we in the legal community refer to it as SCOTUS, 
Supreme Court of the United States. Right. So just for simplicity, I'm just going to say SCOTUS mm-hmm. created this doctrine in the 1967 case, Pearson versus Ray. Basically, give you a short history lesson here, folks. That was a case of during the civil rights movement era, a bunch of clergymen, black and white, in the South were trying to create case law precedent. So they got together and I think they intentionally tried to set up to where they would get arrested for some offense. And in the process, they filed a civil rights lawsuit, a civil lawsuit against the, the municipal judge in, I think it was the state of Mississippi. Uh, and the, that, that got taken up on appeal and the United States Supreme Court said, you know, look, it's wrong to have people involved who are performing government functions to face a lawsuit for what the law might possibly be. Now there's a big difference between having facing a civil lawsuit and facing a criminal charge. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I kind of see where the Supreme court was going in 1967. It's kind of like, Hey, you know, we don't want people just performing routine government functions to face a lot of, a lot of civil lawsuits for basically doing their job. And I can tell you as a public defender, I have made the claim of qualified immunity for doing my job. Okay. So, 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 uh, you know, yeah, I had one of those Republic of Texas guys that, you know, included me in his lawsuit for doing my job as a public, you know, doing what basically I was appointed to do. And so, yeah, I made the argument of, Hey, I, I should have qualified immunity here, not have to face a civil lawsuit. So, full disclosure on that. Right. However, it was kept as, and like I said, this was never approved by Congress. It was solely created by the Supreme Court in 1967. And uh, things really started to change from the, at least from the research I've done was a case in late 2004. I'm not good at French, but it was Brousseau versus Hagen, where basically the, Supreme Court, for all practical purposes, says uh, you can use deadly force. Police officers can use deadly force and not have to face a jury at all. Mm. And so very few exceptions. And uh, that was really the case where things started to dramatically change. And the thing that I find ironic about that case, it it came down in December of 2004. It was what they call a per curiam opinion, which is kind of legal way of saying nobody wanted to put their name on it. (laughs) So we don't even technically know who wrote the opinion. Uh, However, it's got William Rehnquist basically written all over it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really. William Rehnquist was one of my least favorite Supreme Court justices. I mean, the, the person in the Nixon administration who first recommended him as a Supreme Court justice said that uh, Re- William Rehnquist would basically write an opinion justifying the sheriff Nottingham. He was so fanatically pro-police officer, and uh, it's pretty obvious that was the reason why Nixon chose him to be on the Supreme Court to begin with. And well, but, let, me, uh, let me just point out one thing and 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 i think this is important because 
the uh, what gets so confusing or it or so mind blowing, I guess you could say, in these situations, is that the exact people, and we're we're talking the the conservatives or the the more right winger um, style of um, uh, political voices, always point out that they do not want the Supreme Court legislating from the bench. Yet we've already covered that Congress had nothing to do with qualified immunity. This was never legislated from Congress. This is ultimately legislation from the bench, from the Supreme Court. And now it is the doctrine in many cases of the conservative movement and how what they use to defend police officers. And I think that is a, a very important point to bring up. Oh, yes, it's always a thing of the the two party system. It's practically two tribal party system, to be blatantly <laughs> honest about it now. And it's kind of like they they make a lot of noise about how they don't want justices legislating from the bench. I think I'm unless giving up our, on unless it's our way, unless they're going to rule our way. Yeah, so, I think I'm going to give up on calling them tribes. Though. I think I'm going to call them death cults from now on. <laughs> There's uh, there's some justification in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, and it's uh, I I I think they've totally destroyed the whole process of uh, picking Supreme Court justices, which some other time, if you want me to go on tangent of how I think we can fix that problem, I will. But I don't see that changing now. That the, the ironic thing is there are two justices even before George Floyd happened that uh, made it clear that they wanted to address the whole issue of qualified immunity. Ironically, one of them is one of the most liberal justices, Sonia Sotomayor, and one of the most conservative justices, Clarence Thomas. Now, I personally think it's no coincidence that one of them is Hispanic and the other one is African-American. Okay, right. I'm sorry, but I, th I think that is no coincidence that those are the two justices who had signaled before this that they did want to reconsider it. Well, and it and, looks like just from some articles I've read that they are looking at uh, revisiting the the qualified immunity in the in <clears throat> using seven um, modern cases uh, as precedent uh, at a later time this year, whenever they reconvene. Um, I can't remember exactly when that's supposed to be, but it is going to, I want to say it was October, but I'm not real. I can't really remember, but they, well, they are, much, they are planning on looking at it. Yeah. First week of October is uh, generally when Supreme court uh, term starts. Okay. Now we don't know if pandemic is going to change that or not. And uh, I mean, let's be blunt. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, not long for this world okay so <laughs> we don't know what kind of effect that's that's going to happen on the supreme court but sotomayor has been the one who has been the most vocal she she uses phrases like qualified immunity quote sanctioning a shoot first think later approach and uh she's very very hostile to it uh clarence thomas his main beef is the fact that there was absolutely no historical precedent for it but uh he he has on a few occasions pointed to uh an african-american defendant and said there but by the grace of god go i 
Not very many, but there have been a few times. Now, uh, it is important to, to say that there's been this movement going on to challenge qualified immunity before the George Floyd, and let's just call it a, a, an execution, because, I mean, it's, it's, it was a murder. Yeah, which, I, I, mean, you know, I don't uh, think there's I any way uh, around lawyer, that. I think it's kind of like, I think we need to let the, the process take place, but uh, the killing, we, we'll, we'll just use the phrase, the killing, okay? And, but in starting in 2018, there was a coalition of think tanks who were trying to press the issue through the courts. Cato was in the lead of it, but also the Second Amendment Foundation was a part of it. The American Civil Liberties Union is a part of it. A few other think tanks, I can't think of name off the top of my head. And uh, it is also important to point out that uh, Congressman Justin Amash has filed a bill in Congress on May 30th of this year to officially put an end. Uh, I have serious doubts that the Senate will take up his bill, even if it does pass the House of Representatives. But I am curious to watch and see if it'll even get through the House of Representatives or not. Yeah, well, and and it it, it makes me question: Can can Congress is is Congress going to be able to? take this on when again it wasn't legislated by congress it was legislated from the bench so are are we willing to give congress the you know even if it is a good cause do you want to set a precedent that congress can start making uh diktats on how judges should should rule on cases is is that a good thing well our legal tradition is local legislatures are in the best position to determine standards for the local community okay yeah. that that has been a long-standing tradition and uh I, I i actually i think the biggest problem that we have right now is that congress wants to look good and so they come up with these elizabeth warren grand plans where bureaucracies administered by the president are going to solve all the problems, whatever it is, whether it's you know, health care or you know hair loss or whatever. You know, it's kind of like Elizabeth Warren's got this grand plan that the federal government is going to take over and you know do everything, and it's kind of like, well, yeah, but we're going to have nameless, faceless bureaucrats, aka the deep state, actually kind of like figure out the nuts and bolts of how they're going to do it. And oh, by the way, Congress, you're putting the president of the United States officially in charge of this. So I, to me, it hasn't been so much. See, America's founders, they were very concerned about an overreaching executive. Right. And so that they, they, their hope was when they created the Constitution was it's kind of like they would have two houses of Congress that would be try to prevent the president executive from overreaching. Well, it seems to me, and I think George Will, conservative commentator, brings this up very, very well. Cong uh, congressmen today. So they are so determined to look good to their base that they just hand all the power over to the presidents with no oversight whatsoever. 
And I think that's a big part of the problem that we have today, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like at least half the country is convinced that when these when these politicians are running as dictators, which is what they're doing, saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, yeah, that half the country wants them to be dictators. And so that it causes a lot of issue as well. Well, they want them to be dictators for their agenda, for their cause. And, yes. Yeah. For their cause, and their agenda. It's, I mean, it's exactly like, uh, you know, I, I call it the, the feminist and Bill Clinton. You know, if you ask women, what are the things I hated about men? They hate men that lie and cheat and only care about power yet. They love Bill Clinton. Okay. Why do they love Bill Clinton? he promoted their agenda and it's kind of to me a lot with the, the evangelical christians and donald trump uh, in my opinion a lot of other uh, scholars opinions uh, the sermon on the mount is probably the most accurate accounting of what the actual jesus actually preached and when you read it donald trump is like the poster child of everything it's not <laughs> I mean, he's like the polar opposite of the Sermon on the Mount. Right. Yet evangelicals, they like blindly follow Donald Trump. Why? Yeah. Because he promotes their, their political agenda. And so, and I, and I think African-Americans see that. And I do. And uh, Well, and I've heard some ridiculous defenses of, of Donald Trump from evangelicals um, when they talk about they, they want to talk about uh, King Solomon and how he was a sinner and had all these wives and that God always uses the most imperfect and the most, you know, unlikely vessel to, to, you know, move forward his message. So uh, I, I don't foresee anybody winning a fight against evangelicals on that, in that, in that arena. And no, I don't. I just basically just kind of, sarcastically pointed out well then god must have chosen barack obama and bill clinton as well then okay so <laughs> there you go yeah yeah but uh also is like i said uh the american founding fathers i mean i'm a pretty fair amateur historian and i've done a lot of research in this area apart from my law practice as well as my personal interest most people would be surprised to know this but america's quote unquote founding fathers really did not agree on very much. Yeah. Frankly, a lot of them really didn't like each other, but the one thing they pretty much agreed on was their, their big fear was that the Republic they created would turn into an empire. And they, there was a few of them that they literally referred to it as the Roman curse because yeah. their dream, they wanted to create what was then a modern day Roman Republic. And it's kind of like, how do we prevent this from becoming an empire? Which I'm sorry to say, we are now an empire. And you have been I think for quite we a while. Are, yes, we have. And I can't tell you exactly when that started, but uh, to me, when they uh, when they amended the Posse Comitatus Act, that was when in 2005. That's when there was no doubt anymore. I mean, do you want me to talk about the Posse Comitatus Act? Yeah, you can talk about posse comitatus. Okay. Yeah, posse comitatus, it's, uh, it's a Latin phrase, means the power of the county. And it goes back to old English common law, where you would have uh, 
kind of local sheriff, we'll call him Andy Griffith, say from the Andy Griffith show, uh, there'd be somebody he needed to arrest. So he would round up the able-bodied males to go hunt down and arrest the outlaw. Okay. And so, I mean, if you watch Western movies, you'll hear them talk about, uh, you know, round up a posse. And I had to leave town because there was a posse after my tail. Well, that's where that comes from. And so after the Civil War, the, uh, the, the federal army remained in the South for reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And basically, when uh, Rutherford B. Hayes got elected president, he, it was blindingly obvious that the reason he got elected president was because of uh, the rifles of the, of the uh, Northern Army, the rifles and bayonets of the Roman Army, of the, of the Republican Army. And so that led to the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878. That that said that you could not use military personnel to enforce domestic policies. So basically, as the military deals with external threats, you do not use the military for local domestic law enforcement purposes. And that was the law until 2006. Mm-hmm. In 2006, that's uh, basically the justification they used was Hurricane Katrina. They used the excuse, and I'm sorry, I think it was an excuse that the reason why the federal government did not respond as you know, as they as they felt as they could have was because of the Posse Comitatus Act. Well, that's a bunch of bull. Okay, I'm sorry that right. that that. But that's the excuse they used to amend the Posse Comitatus Act in 2006. And literally the title they used to the amendment was use of armed forces in major public emergencies. Okay. Now, question number one, who decides what is a major public emergency? Well, the the president does. The Karens Uh, do. Does the president have to get any kind of authorization from Congress to declare a major public emergency and bring out the military to use them to enforce a domestic policy? No! (laughs) And uh, it's kind of like, uh, to me, stop and think about this for a second. Okay, so December... 2004, Supreme Court of the United States just basically says law enforcement can basically, you know, use deadly force anytime they want to and not have to face any accountability for it. And then in 2006, we amend the Posse Commodus Act to say the President of the United States can call out the military for, quote unquote, a major public emergency. Is it a coincidence that those two things happen about the same time? I mean, I can't sit here and prove to you that they did, that they were connected somehow, but I just find it awful coincidental that these two legal doctrines suddenly just showed up about the same time. Right. Well, and it also showed up right in the middle of militarizing the police after, you know, 9-11-2001. It's probably a, a fair understanding that if you are going to give the the police the the 
military equipment and the authority to use that equipment against American citizens that you're going to have to give them some sort of cover for actually doing that. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. So, and and then you, you just look as it, as it goes on further and they started, uh, cities began to, uh, the, the, I think it was Barack Obama made a deal with, uh, Israel to where, uh, the police officers of, of urban areas would travel over to Israel and train with the IDF. I wouldn't be surprised at all. And this, this was about the same time that you started hearing all the rumblings about uh, former military being considered um, terrorist threats and enemy combatants, right? Yes. So there's there's this entire um, focus on pushing the this power into the hands of police departments who aren't sufficiently trained to fight insurgencies or combatants, but they are being taught that that's exactly what they're doing. And I've run into this several times having discussions with former police officers online that, well, I've had insurgents that did this. And I'm like, what insurgents? You were in Baltimore. You weren't in Afghanistan. What insurgents are you dealing with? No, you had a United States citizen. And and so when you change that point of view, you're changing their mindset to view the citizenry as enemy combatants. And that's a major issue. And then when you look on top of that and you compound qualified immunity and what they're saying the level of proof is to bring forward charges or these lawsuits against law enforcement is that you have to prove that in that moment they knew that they were violating your rights right and so they the and they, they make these there, they, you have to prove that they knowingly violated current statutory or case law that is the current standard that they have to come up with okay which yeah yeah that that is the current standard Um, not only did you police officer behave badly and you don't have to face a jury but we are going to require your accuser to prove that you intentionally and knowingly violated a current statute well first of all a lot of this stems from local prosecutors, mayors. They want to have police on their side because police unions carry a great deal of power when it comes to local elections. They can get their members out to vote for candidate Smith, candidate Smith versus candidate Jones for district attorney, for mayor, for city councilman. So local government is very, very keen on being aware of, we don't want to get the local police union mad at us, okay? So right off the bat, ordinarily the people 
the one who ultimately has the power is the elected district attorney. Okay. Uh, most people think the judge is more powerful but than the district attorney, but actually the district attorney can have the judge arrested if he wants to. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so ultimately it's up to the district attorney to decide, am I going to file charges against uh, officer Barney Fife say? Okay. Uh, so district attorney knows kind of like, yeah, Officer Barney Fife, he's kind of meddlesome and knuckleheaded and uh, not entirely certain why Sheriff Taylor wants to keep Barney Fife on the force, but, you know, okay, uh, Sheriff Taylor, if you like him, we'll let you keep him, okay, even though he is a knucklehead and he you know, arrests people for wrong reasons. He's kind of a lovable character and everybody in the community knows him, so we'll just let that go, okay? But, you know, at, at what point does, some, does somebody in the law enforcement world step in? Now, ideally, it would probably be the state attorney general. Well, I can tell you in the state of Texas, our current attorney general, Ken Paxson, I don't mind calling him out. Basically, I wouldn't bet a dime on him ever filing a criminal case against any police officer in the state of Texas. Okay. I mean, that's just not going to happen with this guy and so i mean is the federal attorney general bill barr going to come up and bring criminal charges against a police officer as well i find that uh i wouldn't bet on money on that either okay so yeah. and i and i think in particular the african american community they see this and i, I think a lot of it does stem from the war on drugs and if you want me to go talk about that some more i'd be happy to yeah i want to get into the war on drugs in here in just a minute but you had brought up the police unions and it made me think of um the statement that the police union in minneapolis released i, I don't know if you heard about this but uh, i had found a news story in which the mayor of minneapolis had had been saying that he was uh had been fighting the police unions um, trying to get them to drop what is called a warrior style, style training for the police department and that he demanded they drop it. And he had basically been going to war with the police union since he had been elected. The police union not only refused and basically told the mayor, you may be the mayor, but we are the ones in charge of policing the streets. They also told him, since you want to make this warrior style training, um, you want to make it illegal to train our officers in this way. We're going to take this $55,000 a year course and we're going to offer it to any active officer for free at this point. Because our officers are need to be aware that their first job is getting home safely every night and that's a major issue whether that's i mean and i would i i can i can only imagine that that's across the united states but for a police union to come out and admit that the only thing the first thing we're concerned with is the is the officers getting home safely every night and not protecting and serving the community even though any libertarian knows that the police are, are under no diktat to protect the community. You can look around and you can find court cases, 
Pete Quinones talks about it all, all the time on Freeman Beyond the Wall. You got Warren versus District of Columbia, yada, yada, yada. You had this the officer in Parkland who refused to go into the school and help the kids was just reassigned and given his job back. So it's it's a it's a well set precedent that they are not there to protect us. But for the president of the police union to come out and admit that that not only is that not their job, but their job is to go home at night is is was pretty eye opening to me. Well, I will say in the state of Texas, I think it's in the state constitution that uh, law enforcement has an obligation to protect the rights of Texas citizens. So a little quirk of Texas law there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Washington, D.C. is just an unusual place for, for a, legally for a number of reasons, going all the way back to Marbury versus Madison. Uh, so the, the, the odd, odd thing about Washington, D.C. is it is directly under the jurisdiction of the federal government because they are not officially a state. Right. And so the, they don't have a governor that can call out the National Guard or anything like uh, the posse comitatus doctrine whatsoever. So that's the reason. And I think that's uh, part of the reason why the most recent episode of uh, the Trump administration using tear gas and rubber bullets to clear peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square so Donald Trump could have his photo walk in front of a in front of a church. Uh, I mean, I, I heard an interview of the mayor of Washington, D.C. It's kind of like, you know, I, I had no authority to stop that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, he's kind of like, what can I do about it? You know, yeah. really, really, um, D.C. is controlled by, you know, the federal government. I mean, that's yeah. And I, I don't even understand. I think the mayor is more there as a mouthpiece and just kind of a, you know, um, a showpiece more than anything in Washington, D.C., because they really they really have no authority whatsoever. Well, apparently she can paint Black Lives Matter on the street in front of the White House. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, that's individual autonomy there. That's that has nothing to do with their position of power. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So yes, you you have you have brought up the war on drugs. It is something that every libertarian has spent a lot of time talking about, and it's very important that we continue to talk about it, and that we continue to look at it because the war war on drugs has been more destructive to um, poor communities than any other legislation in the United States. So let's get into the how the war on drugs has contributed to the police brutality problem uh, that we see to, the, to this day. Oh, I think the war on drugs, the seeds for the current problem were planted during the war on drugs. Now, were there black people oppressed in America before uh, Richard Nixon took office? Yes, okay, let me, let's, let's not sugarcoat that. So yes, we do have a long history of African-Americans being lynched by white mobs. Right. And, uh, Full disclosure, some of my mother's ancestors were slave owners in Louisiana. Okay, so, I mean, I've tried to make amends of that, but part part of my work as a public defender is kind of my way of sort of making amends for that, but we'll move forward. Uh, Richard Nixon was the one who officially declared the war on drugs. 
in the uh, after he won the the election in 1968, and basically it was an unusual election from the start because you had George Wallace, who was very much a very obvious a racist and uh, pro segregation. He ran as a third party candidate. Hubert Humphrey was the Democrat candidate. They split the opposition. Richard Nixon ran on this uh, combination of law and order and peace with dignity in Vietnam. So mm -hmm. kind of like those are his big things. So his big, he, he when he got elected, Right off the bat, he realized he had two major opponents, and Richard Nixon did not believe in loyal opposition. R Richard Nixon saw the war's loyal opposition as an oxymoron. He saw he had two major groups. One was the anti-war left. The other was the African-Americans. The civil rights he, movement. Yeah. The civil rights movement, the African-Americans. Mm -hmm. So he knew that he could not get away with coming out with legislation and policies that were blatantly against the anti-war and against the blacks. So he was looking for what is an issue and a set of policies that I can get and I promote that's gonna make me look like I'm doing something with law and order when in reality, I'm kind of attacking the the anti-war left who smoke marijuana and uh, African-Americans who use heroin. Right. Bingo, war on drugs. Not only that's kind of like, gee, what's my legal justification under the Constitution for doing all this? Oh, gee, you know, heroin and marijuana, they are imported from outside America. So, oh, uh, protecting borders and interstate commerce. So that gives me justification to do that. And so that has led to, and one of his uh, top people named John Ehrlichman, you, you can look it up. He later, he got caught up in uh, the, water, the Watergate scandal. He was an active participant in it. He got convicted of a felony and uh, he got pretty hacked off when Nixon didn't pardon him afterwards too. But he has, uh, on multiple occasions before he died, come out and publicly said that the whole war on drugs was racist to begin with, that they knew from the very, very start it was not going to be effective, and it would have been better off to have treated as a public health issue instead of a law enforcement issue. However, they had to look, Nixon had to find something to make it look like he was the law and order president. And so that started really ramped up the war on drugs from the beginning. And racial profiling was a part of it from the very beginning. And it was no, it was no secret. They tried to pretend it wasn't, but it was, it was pretty well. Now, as the war on drugs began to really take off, you had more and more case law coming down, giving police more and more authority in quote unquote high crime areas. Uh, so then I stop and ask yourself, you know, what is the definition of a high crime area? What is it that makes one area a high crime area versus a low crime area? 
Well, high crime areas where poor people live. Okay. I mean, rich people, they have drug dealers too. Okay. We call them doctors. Okay. <laughs> rich <Yeah>. people <laughs> tend to go to licensed medical providers <laughs> who give them Percocet and uh, hydrocodone and all kinds of Oxycontin and all kinds of fun stuff. That's perfectly legal. Okay. Right. Poor people can't do that. People right. like George Floyd cannot do that. Okay? Well, there is a reason that the CIA flooded, you know, poor African communities with cocaine and not rich upper class white communities. Yep. You know, I mean, I'm sure they were selling them to their Republican friends, but you know, that's, that's another story altogether. Well, it's a thing of, uh, you know, Rich white Republicans, what drugs did they use? Alcohol, tobacco, those those drugs are legal. And uh, so we can do those. But uh, the drugs used by, you know, the anti-war hippies, marijuana, the drugs preferred by poor African-Americans, cocaine and heroin, we're really going to crack down on that. And, uh, you know, actually, they were very clever. They They managed to go to... Well, Hollywood film producers and convince them to start putting out scripts where the drug dealer was the villain. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And so, yeah, that's if you, your audience is really interested, there's a good book. I'll take a moment to give them a shout out so by naming Dan Baum, B A U M. The title of the book is Smoke and Mirrors. He did an excellent job of documenting the history of that. You can get it on Amazon.com. I don't get any royalties from them or anything like that, but just recommend it as a good book. Okay. But what that ultimately led to was that uh, the local media and national media, they were brought in as part of it. It's a thing that uh, they tended to run, when a crime story would happen, they tended to run the police and prosecutor version of the crime story without question. Yeah. And they conveniently covered up the the late night no knock SWAT raids where, you know, people just, oh, just happened to get shot. And uh, kind of like we had uh, our our informant said that uh, this, this person lived at this address, but it turns out that this person lived across the street. And, oh, we're so sorry about that. We had the wrong address. Or we had the address where this person lived like five years ago. Right. And, uh, it is also should point out that uh, when Nixon was coming up with his war on drugs, the owner and editor of the Washington Post, her son was a was a Washington D.C. police officer, and uh, that's that's something that Dan Baum brings out said that she she played a major role in uh, privately promoting the whole war on drugs because her son was a police officer. Okay. Now, uh, full disclosure, the guy I grew up with, like a brother to me, he's a police officer in West Texas. And uh, I have a cousin whose son's a police officer in New Orleans. So I don't think I'm just automatically anti-police officer. I'm just kind of like, but I've seen a lot in my 20 years as a public defender. My my dad used to joke, it's kind of like he raised us both. And he, he, he liked to joke and and towards the end of his life, Scott, I raised one to be a police officer and I raised the other to be a public defender. Like, what on earth happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't think you have to be anti-police officer to be anti the job, as it is, at least at, at this moment. 
you know. Well, I think we need to ask ourselves what is different now because, I mean, it's, I mean, I can remember growing up is kind of like people would make jokes about poli uh, police officers harassing black people. I mean, Richard Pryor made numerous comedy skits about it in the 70s, but it, it really just seems to me that uh, it's, it's really ramped up a lot since 2004, right about the time the uh, Supreme Court basically expanded the qualified immunity doctrine to say police officers could just use deadly force just whenever they wanted to for all practical purposes. Uh, I, I think that led to it. The ongoing war on drugs that just keeps, you know, I mean, the, the 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 classic Robert Higgs crisis in Leviathan of you know Ludwig von Mises saying government action basically creates a need for more government action. It just keeps getting ramped up and ramped up and ramped up. Right. And uh, I think that that has been constantly ramped up. And I I think the fact that our current president, his his history has a lot to do with it and you can go on youtube and type in donald trump encourages police brutality and you can listen to yourself that in january 2017 he was making a big public performance instead in front of a bunch of new york police officers where he was just blatantly encouraging them to engage in police brutality yeah, you you can you can listen to it for yourself and draw yeah, your he own. He said something place. like, "You don't have to you don't have to be so nice." You know, when you're instead of ducking their head and when you're putting them in the car, won't you like smack them into the car yep. or something like that? Yeah. Yep. And uh, I mean, that was and I and I think African Americans saw that and that stuck in their minds. I think there was a a lot of people that I know. Some of my relatives voted for Donald Trump, and they told me. They were not entirely comfortable with him, but they were hoping that he would, quote, act more presidential once he actually got in office. And I, I told him, I, well, I wish you were right, but I ain't, buy, I ain't buying it. I ain't, I don't believe it. Yeah. Sure enough, January 2017. <laughs> you know, I heard, I want to say it was Michael Malice that said it. And I, I think that this best explains Donald Trump and his rhetoric. And it's why I don't spend a whole lot of time discussing Donald Trump's uh, at least what what he says because um, he Michael Malice I think it was Michael Malice and he said uh, the the right wingers the the Trump supporters know to take Donald Trump seriously but not literally and the and the never Trumpers and the left wing take Trump literally and not seriously and so I think there's a, a portion of his rhetoric that is and and whether or not that particular statement where he's talking about don't be so nice um whether he was just you know trying to joke around with cops in their own language or whatever um i think that there's that that portion you're never going to break through to a specific population of people when you're talking about the things that he literally said because they look at a lot of those things as jokes and as, but every joke is only funny because there's a portion of truth in it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I do think there's a lot of rhetoric that comes out of his mouth that is dangerous. I just don't, um, I just don't know if focusing on 
what he's saying in, in instances like that, where he's talking to a police union, if that's actually, you know, changing any minds. You know, you get my point? Well, I will say that I don't think anybody's going to change their mind about Donald Trump by this stage of the game. He is what he is. He is. And he's not going to change. But I will say is that uh, if the president of the United States or any other politician does not show a basic respect for the rule of law, what message does that send to police officers and other people? Right. And I, I mean, I've heard African Americans literally say, he's not my president. Okay. <clears throat> right. So, and I, I think that has fueled a lot of the current uh, protesting that we are seeing. I, I think a lot of it also does have to do with the coronavirus, the prolonged lockdowns that we've had. And for reasons I don't really understand, apparently the virus has, uh, the pandemic has had a bigger impact on African-American communities than others. I really yes. can't say why that is. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I know. The virus can recognize color, but I think it probably has to do with like stress levels and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, well, I, and Dr. Rhonda Patrick was on Joe Rogan a while back and she had mentioned the, that um, in the in the African-American community, there's um, a, a much higher rate of um, vitamin D deficiency. And that could have something to do with it, too. It probably has a lot to do with diet, uh, lack of exercise and uh and I think a lot of it is just uncertainty about the economic future. I mean, they've had their jobs taken away from them. It's kind of like it was mandated that you can't work. Right. Well, for somebody, I mean, you're a truck driver. Okay. So you were able to continue working because, you know, hey, stores needed toilet paper. Okay. Right. So, yeah. so I'm still, I'm still waiting on my government mandated vacation, though. <laughs> okay. You know, and it's a it's a thing of you know, I it's it's gonna sound odd the way it happened, but uh kind of like in a way I was fortunate that my mother died when she did. I mean she was eighty-three years old, she had cancer, she was ready to go. Mm -hmm. But uh combination of two things, I mean, number one, there's no way that she would have had a prayer of surviving if she had got uh, the COVID the the coronavirus, there's no way that she would have been able to recover from it. And plus, going when she did, I, I inherited enough money to basically hold me through the through the pandemic. Right. So for me, the economic shutdown, and plus the course mandated that uh, my job was a quote unquote essential government function. So I was still able to get out of the house, drive into Dallas, see some people. Uh, interact with some people even during the pandemic. All right. Well, you know, a lot of African Americans, they weren't able to do that. And so I think there, I, I do think there's kind of like a lockdown fatigue of uh, being locked in as long as they have been. And uh, also, I think that the technology today, the smartphone technology, social media platforms, they were able to post this stuff. We simply see a lot more of it, the police brutality today than we used to see it. Oh yeah. And uh, police officers more and more are being required to uh, wear body cam video. And I can tell you that when I started practicing law 20 years ago, 
uh, you know, we were just starting to have the the in car squad the squad car videos, right? And uh, kind of like amazing things, and it's just uh, there was quite a few cases where the squad car video just conveniently wasn't working at a particular point in time, yeah. And uh, police officers managed to kind of like pull the motor and stuff just outside of video camera recording mm -hmm. so you couldn't see what they were doing uh yeah i saw a lot of that in my early days and it it used to be the fact that uh, police officers and prosecutors in texas were notorious for destroying evidence if you don't believe it happened look up michael morton sometime and just so you just so know it's not a uh, racist thing, Michael Morton was a was a white man. I don't know if you're familiar with his case or not. I'm not. Go ahead. You can go ahead and tell me about it. Well, I mean, uh, Michael Morton was a famous case in the suburbs of Austin. He was, uh, his wife was found brutally murdered and in their house. And he got uh, basically a, uh, the local sheriff just decided on his own based on no real evidence whatsoever that michael morton must have done it and so the whole system basically just turned on a dime and decided that they were going to frame michael morton uh he was a white man he was assistant manager of a uh i think it was like a walmart or a kmart or something like that and he wound up going to the penitentiary in Texas for murdering his wife. He was in penitentiary for 25 years when suddenly DNA evidence surfaced up and it was discovered that the prosecutor in his case had intentionally hid the fact that there was evidence, physical DNA evidence that was recovered from the scene. Yeah. and that he had intentionally knowingly hid that from Michael Morton's attorneys. I think and, I do uh, remember the case now that you now that you've explained it. I think I do remember. I just didn't know the guy's name. Yeah, it, it led to a lot of changes in Texas. And the thing that was unique was the, uh, the the man that was the prosecutor, his name was Ken Anderson, and he later became a judge in Williamson County, Texas. And uh, he he wound up not only did he get uh thrown off the bench because of it but he did actually have to go into custody mm -hmm. and he only spent like three days and the reason why he only spent three days is because michael morton himself said uh that should be enough i mean if michael morton had really wanted to he could have really totally destroyed ken anderson but i think to michael's morton's credit he he said no i don't want to totally destroy him like he totally destroyed me. I'm yeah, I know what it feels like. Yeah. 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 But Ima imagine, imagine if the court system or the judicial system had had empathy. That would just be something amazing. Well, I can tell you that it was very clear among prosecutors after that that uh, as a as a as a public defender, I told more than one of them, you know what, you don't want to be the next Ken Anderson. Okay, so yeah. so that that led to a lot of changes in the way prosecutors in Texas did their jobs after that, and right. uh, I, I think it's kind of like when you can show that uh, you you see that. I mean, my hope is is that whatever comes of this, that uh, 
I think I'm hoping a lot of police officers decide, you know what, I don't want to be the next person that's accused of uh, killing the next George Floyd. Man, you know, you would you would hope, man, but I don't know if you look if you pay any attention to the Free Thought Project and what's going on and all over the country in these protests. You know, they're attacking the peaceful protesters and the rioters and looters are just, you know, walking free. And it's just ridiculous. I mean, you had a, that 75-year-old man in Buffalo the other day who, you, you know, is in, the last I heard he was in critical condition. He got pushed down by two cops uh, for trying to give them their helmet back. Was it a cop had left uh, one of their riot helmets sitting around and he picked it up and approached the police officers and was trying to give it back. And they just pushed him down, busted his head open. And one of the cops actually went to stop and help him. And, and, and it looked like the commanding, you know, whoever was in control of the unit that was being marched down the street, stopped him and told him to get on down the road and then radioed somebody like he was radio paramedics or something. And you're seeing this all over the place. Um, I just read a story the other day about a woman in, um, in San Antonio who's who's being rewarded $200,000 because she was she was sitting in her car waiting on her boyfriend to come out of work and the cops pulled up and decided they wanted to search her for drugs and so they called a female officer over and the female officer made her drop her pants in public and pulled her tampon out while she was on her period yeah and it's just like are do the, these people just have no respect for uh, an individual's autonomy. So that brings me to the last thing I wanted to discuss was how do we approach law enforcement or in number, number one, I think calling it law enforcement is the biggest issue. How do we approach society in, in such a way that these people that we call police are respecting the autonomy of the citizens around them and not violating their rights and in being financially rewarded for violating their rights well i think the the financial reward i could do an entire podcast talking about that yeah. <laughs> okay, well so, yeah and so, i mean that gets yeah, us into I, I, I could, yeah, that I moves into asset forfeiture and all kinds of things which i would it, uh, i i just Real quickly, I would ex expect that is a result of the war on drugs, right? That was something oh, that yes. started after the war on drugs. That was started uh, by no less than Joe Biden and uh, pushing it through the uh, 1993 crime bill. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm even given some thought to even write an entire book based on my experience and research on the, the war on drugs. But as far as uh, you write a book, I'll, they... I'll read it and promote it. I promise you. OK, well, I need to do that. If I get off my butt and do that now. That well, you I, have, I, you I, had I, three months. I don't know what you're waiting on. Oh, I was trying to get people out of jail. I, <laughs> I don't know why. It just kind of like, seemed like the right thing to do. But uh, uh, in, in truth, a lot of my mother dying had part of it too. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I will leave you with the story they told us in law school of, uh, you know, the law student that encounters the police officer and the police officer, you know, 
tells them to do this and the law law students kind of like i'm a law student i know the law i know the law you can't tell me what to do because i'm a law student and the police officer puts his gut hand on his gun and says, like, yeah i know the law too it's here on my hip and i pick the damn hands up and put them on the car <laughs> the moral of the story as i was told is the courtroom is your arena the street is their arena okay in the courtroom I call the shots on the street. They call the shots. And uh, I, I think that's uh, kind of the way it is at this point in time. Uh, I do think that things are going to change. I would hope that I, I think Justin Amash is on the right track with his bill yeah. to, you know, at, at least do uh, to uh, at least address the issue in Congress. Right. of what is and is not what qualified immunity means right and uh i mean I, I think if people could get behind justin amash and push his bill uh i think that could have i mean at least raise the issue and i, I think that's i what heard it had uh, i heard it had 20 co-sponsors and not one of them was a republican Surprise, that surprise. does not surprise me one bit. And uh, I mean, Frank, when when Justin Amash left the Republican Party, I left the Republican Party. So so uh, that's that's another story. But I, I think you podcasters could force the issue and keep it in the forefront because I, I I've only heard one mainstream outlet even mention qualified immunity, and that's the PBS Newshour. So I don't know how much traction that's going to get. But I think if more and more podcasts like yours kept talking about it enforcing the issue and keeping it in the forefront because keep in mind we had two supreme court justices even before this happened who made it clear that they wanted to address this issue right and uh also i i think people can have a huge impact in local politics that uh if, if they get behind people like the mayor in in Minneapolis, uh, Minneapolis, uh, kind of challenging the police union. I think that can have a big impact. I think if they kind of like put pressure on local elected district attorneys, I think that can have a big impact. Uh, getting beyond the local level. I really don't know how much power, but I, I can tell you that public pressure does have a major impact on local government and how they do their jobs at a local level. Hmm. Well, I, I just real quick, I, I heard a different moral to that story. You said the moral to the story was the street was the cops, you know, uh, arena and the courtrooms, your arena. What I heard is might makes right. That's what I heard. Um, and that's definitely not the way I like things to go. So, um, I, you know, it's that, that monopoly on violence is a serious issue. I think, I think one thing that we do need to try to see at some point in time in some way, shape or form. And I'm hoping, um, with this defund the police and dismantle the, uh, Minneapolis police department, it, it opens up the arena for competition to be moving in. And I think competition would cure a lot of the issues as well as ending the war on drugs so well i, I think until we end the war on drugs that's it's things i mean 
the war on drugs is really the low-hanging fruit of law enforcement. They're they're the easy pickings. Well, right. And yeah. until you end the war on drugs, and I, I, uh, I mean, I, I mean, we're already seeing it with marijuana, and I think Ron Paul showed us that Washington D.C. is not going to change Washington D.C. Uh, I think it's going to have to come. Change is going to have to come in the combination of the state level. Ultimately, what I think is going to really cause a change is when foreigners stop buying U.S. Treasury bonds. <laughs> I mean, that that is what ultimately, when uh, when when foreign central banks and foreign investors kind of like, no, we're not buying U.S. Treasury bonds anymore. Uh, that's what I think is ultimately going to get the power elites attention when that happens. Yeah. Well, and individual Americans, too. There's a lot of a. Uh... I think Mike, I had Mike Meharry on the show a while back, and that was one of the things he said. He said a lot of people think China is the number one holder of United States debt, but actually individual Americans hold more uh, more, more uh, U.S. Treasury bonds than China does. Well, I suspect it's really the federal, U.S. Federal Reserve that mainly holds those in the name of U.S. citizens. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, you want me to talk about that? I can tell you. Well, you did story. bring up the Federal Reserve and building in New Orleans. So let, real quick. All right. Yeah, I, I, I had a federal jury trial, drug conspiracy trial uh, a few years ago, and I was the attorney that handled the appeal. In the federal system, they want the same attorney that handled the jury trial to handle the appeal. The reason being, they figured you already know all the facts of the case. So I, I had to go to New Orleans to have the appeal. And in New Orleans, all the federal buildings are in this one particular park around a small park. Ironically, it's called Lafayette Park. And the thing that struck me when I went down there and it's kind of like, here's this federal building, here's that federal building, so forth. But as I was looking around, there was only one federal building that had a fence around it. The U.S. Oh. Federal Reserve. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's kind of kind of like the U.S. Not only did they have a fence around it, but they had an armed uh, uh, security guard with a dog <laughs> patrolling the Federal Reserve. And it really dawned on me, it's kind of like, yeah, of all the federal buildings here, which one is the one that's the only one that has the fence, the armed security guard and the dog? The Federal Reserve Building. So I think that that tells you a lot about where the uh, our government's priorities are. Well, I, I think communities, uh, especially the uh, more impoverished communities, need to start doing doing that to, to their their areas to keep uh, cops and government officials out of their their areas until there's uh, serious change in the approach to policing. Honestly, but that's my own opinion there. Okay. Well, if there's nothing else, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk. Okay. Well, I know, Michael. I always appreciate you coming on. I, I really thank you. I know it's been a, a longer episode than we norm, normally go do, and I really do appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. I really appreciate it. Well, I feel like I have an obligation to share what I know, so I'm happy to have that opportunity to do it. Okay. Well, I feel like I have an obligation to ask you anytime I I see something that needs to be talked about. So you're the, you're my go-to. Okie dokie. All right. Talk to you later, Tommy. Yes, sir. You have a good one. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. That was uh, public uh, defender. Uh, 
former Rothbard student and uh, one of my favorite guys to talk to, Mr. Michael Harris. I am Tommy Salmons. Late. <laughs>